Creating Wilderness on Native Land in Northeastern Ontario, an interview with Jocelyn Thorpe about the Tomogamy region. And I speak with Dorothy Schreiber and Simon Pula about the 14th annual International Wanapate Aboriginal History and Politics Colloquium. I'm Sean Courage, and this is episode 8 of Nature's Past, a podcast of the Network in Canadian History and Environment. On this episode of the podcast, we focus on the history of resource conflicts between Aboriginal people in the federal and provincial states in Canada. In the most recent issue of the Journal of the Canadian Historical Association, Jocelyn Thorpe writes about one such conflict in the Tamagami region of northeastern Ontario. For more than a century, the Temaogama Anishinaabe have struggled to have their land claim recognized by the federal and provincial governments in the Tamagami region, or as it is known among the Aboriginal community, Daki Manan. Throughout that struggle, the Ontario government has attempted to secure control over that land as both a forest reserve and a pristine wilderness for tourism. Dr. Jocelyn Thorpe joined us on the podcast to tell us more about how Daki Manan became the Tamagami Wilderness. Hi there, my name is Jocelyn Thorpe and I'm a postdoctoral fellow uh, at UBC in the Department of History. Thanks for joining us, Jocelyn. Uh, I was wondering if you could begin by just explaining uh, to listeners where the Tamagami region is and why it became so well known in the 1980s and 1990s as a site of environmental activism. Certainly. Uh, Tamagami is about a four-hour drive directly north of Toronto. Actually, more like five hours. Um, So north of North Bay, Ontario. Um, And it's just off of Highway 11. There's no... um, specific park or specific boundaries of Tamagami, but it's the general region of lakes um, lakes and forests uh, just around there, so about an hour north of North Bay. Okay. Uh, so Tamagami became well-known as a site of environmental activism in the 1980s when uh, the Ontario government proposed to join two logging roads in the region. Um, this provoked controversy because environmentalists were concerned that if these roads were joined, then not only would there be damage from increased logging in the region, mm-hmm. but also uh, tra- car traffic could go through because joining these roads made it so that two highways were also joined. Uh-huh. And so they were concerned about um, negative effects from logging and also traffic uh, on a particular um, area of Tamagami that had become a provincial park called Lady Evelyn's Smooth Water Provincial Park. So um, so in response to this, then uh, the Tamagami Wilderness Society was formed, and uh, activism kind of happened around that and grew to a national level. Um, people like Margaret Atwood and David Suzuki supported the environmentalist efforts, and it became a kind of mainstream issue right. in the late 1980s. Right, and Ontarians would be most familiar with this uh, because of the arrest of Bob Ray. Yes, for sure. There was an environmentalist blockade, which is kind of interesting um, for what we'll talk about later, because before the environmentalist blockade, there was a blockade by the Temia Magama Anishinaabe, who is the First Nation there. Um, and they were blockading the road in part because they wanted to protect the area from uh, logging interests, but largely because they wanted to protect their claim to the territory that they called Dakimanan. Um, and so after the First Nation had, had done a 
had done a road blockade, then environmentalists did a different and separate, or a separate and later road blockade. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was this blockade that kind of at- attracted a lot of attention, particularly, as you said, when Bob Bray was, uh, was arrested um, on the environmentalist line. Mm-hmm. And then you describe this as these are two different protest movements, but in uh, the larger news media, they were represented as uh, Aboriginal people and environmental activists working together. Yes, indeed. Um, there were some times where uh, where the mainstream media paid close attention to how the environmentalist and the First Nations interests were different, um, but largely they were represented as um, Aboriginal people and environmentalists working together to save wilderness from mm-hmm. logger. Um, but in fact, the First Nation was looking for... Um, recognition from Canadian people and from Canadian government more particularly uh, for their claim to the land uh, known as Bakumanan. And at the same time that these protests were happening, then the First Nation was in the process of a long court battle um, trying to prove their claim to Bakumanan. So, um, yes, that, that, that battle started in 1973 and it ended in 1991 with a Supreme Court decision. And the Supreme Court said, that um, that the First Nation had actually lost their claim to Dakimanan through adhering to the Robinson-Huron Treaty mm. of 1850, um, but that the government, both levels of government, owed certain unfulfilled treaty obligations to the First Nation. So that was in 1991, but um, earlier when the protests were happening, uh, that was um, when the, the land claim was still going through the court system. So... Uh, why don't we talk a little bit about uh, what you wrote in the Journal of the Canadian Historical Association. In your article and your larger research on uh, tomogamy, uh, you focus mainly on the social construction of nature, building on the work of environmental historians like William Cronin. And you state in the article that the concept of wilderness remains largely intact outside of academic circles. So how did tomogamy come to be constructed as a wilderness space? Well, I think in the article I talk about two different ways that it became a sort of famous site of of Canadian wilderness. But I think that there were a number of different times um, that it became reinscribed as a wilderness site. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I started off by asking this this question. So if, on the one hand, the First Nation sees Tomogamy not, in fact, as a wilderness area, but as Dakimanan, which means our land, then... How come, you know, non-native Canadians like me have paddled through Tomogamy thinking of it only as part of this pristine Canadian landscape? Um, And in fact, that is how I started out doing this research. um, When I was 15, I first paddled through Tomogamy, and that was just as um, the court battle was happening. And later on, when I learned about what was going on with the First Nation, I was struck by how I didn't learn that at all when I was paddling through the area. And we were taught instead, oh, you know, look at this beautiful, pristine landscape, these untouched forests, and so on. And so that when I learned about the land claim, um, my memory of the place really um, pressed against that. It was so different, because here um, a First Nation was saying, yes, this is our land, our territory, we've been here since time immemorial, and so on. And here I and several other people... um, have gone through kind of thinking, oh, look at this empty wilderness space. Right. So I started asking, how did this become a wilderness space? If, if it wasn't always already wilderness, then how did it become so um, through history, through relationships of power, and so on? 
Um, so in the article, I talk about two different ways. One um, was through early forest policy and uh, forestry activities in the area in the early 1900s, and mm. another was um, was through tourism, and particularly through travel writing about the region that was uh, published in magazines like Rod and Gun in the late, eight, late 19th and early 20th century. Um, so those were two ways uh, that the region quite differently became wilderness. So on the one hand, in forestry uh, legislat- legislation and discussion, um, then Tomogamy was represented as this uh, area of pristine forests um, that needed to be uh, controlled and um, used profitably by the province and the nation. Um, and so through that representation of the area as empty except for full of trees, right. then the nation claim sort of disappeared. <laughs> there could be no people in a pristine kind of landscape. And then separately, um, tourist literature. It was kind of interesting because at the same time that the forestry literature was talking about how Tomogamy was full of these you know, forests that were wasteful and in decline and needed to be managed by the scientific forestry, mm-hmm. then tourist literature was saying, oh, these pristine, beautiful forests um, need to be kept this way. They need to be protected so that tourists can visit them. Um, but similar to the forestry discourse, in the tourism discourse, um, then the lands were largely uh, empty of, of uh, an Aboriginal claim to land. Mm-hmm. But interestingly, a big difference um, from the tourism and forestry discourses is that in forestry, then people were largely erased from the landscape, uh, whereas in tourism discourse, there was tons of attention placed on First Nations peoples. Um, but in that uh, discourse, they weren't so much people with a claim to land, living in the present, um, the land wasn't our land, as it is in Dakimanan, mm-hmm. as uh, First Nation calls it, but it was Aboriginal peoples represented as part of the landscape. Um, so they were present on the landscape, but not in a way uh, that they were active um, participants in their own present and in their own claim to land, but instead um, were represented as part of what facilitated tourist trips to their tourist, pristine Canadian wilderness. So those are two ways that um, that Tomogamy kind of became wild um, through discourse uh, in in the late 19th and early 20th century. And again, um, this was reproduced. Um, I don't talk about it in the article, but in um, my larger project, uh, there are other ways as well. Um, and the environmentalist um, uh, activity of the 1980s and 1990s was, I think, part of this um, representation of the land as empty, uh, largely empty, and as part of wilderness rather than an inhabited, um, inhabited area. And so all the while through this period in the late 19th and early 20th centuries when the region is being designated as a forest reserve and being constructed as a, a tourist destination, there's an ongoing land claim. Indeed. At that time, the Tamiya Magama uh, Anishinaabe were largely struggling to have a reserve created for them. So the language, I think, was quite different, although... Um, it's always hard when you're doing historical research to right. find voices of Aboriginal people, you know. Um, but but so largely um, the voices of the Tamiya Magama Anishinaabe came out um, in letters between 
the the chiefs of the First Nation and mm-hmm. the Department of Indian Affairs. So they would often chiefs would often write um, through somebody else or talk to their Indian agents and say, "Look, we've been asking for a reserve since the late 19 or late 1880s, um, and what's been going on?" So yeah, so as you said. By the time the Forest Reserve was created in 1901, then the First Nation had for over 20 years trying, been trying to articulate their very different claim to land. Um, at that time, not saying, this is all of our territory. Um, well, they did say this is all of our territory, right. but since they were trying to focus on having a land base um, that couldn't then be encroached upon by outsiders, uh, whether tourists or uh, forestry interests, um, then the emphasis was more on could we have a space to call our own. And but yeah, so that that started then and kept on going all the way until the present. And why were the, the Temiogama Anishinaabe denied an Indian reserve? Um, well, in different times it seemed for different reasons. A lot of a lot of it was um, the federal and provincial government kind of passing the buck back and forth. So since um, the First Nation wasn't represented at the Robinson-Huron Treaty of 1850. Mm-hmm. Then the Ontario government said, "Well, we don't we don't owe this band anything um, since since the land subsequently with Confederation passed to the provincial government." Mm-hmm. Then they said, "Well, they're not on the treaty, so we don't owe them anything." And then the federal government um, said, "Well, it would be nice to have a have a reserve for this band, but um, seem to um, kind of respect." the provincial government claim that they, in fact, owned the land. So there was a lot of correspondence back and forth, um, actually only because the First Nation continued to press the issue of a reserve. Um, But for the longest time, um, it was just sort of buck passing until finally the provincial government said no. But it wasn't until... um, quite a bit later. So the Forest Reserve mm-hmm. was made in, uh, in 1901, but it wasn't until 1910 that the provincial government said that the reason that they were going to deny a reserve to this First Nation was because uh, of the existence of the Forest Reserve. Right. So in spite of the fact that for several years before the creation of the Forest Reserve, the First Nation had been petitioning for a reserve, then as soon as, um, well, actually, you know, nine years after the Forest Reserve had been in existence, then the provincial government was able to say, oh no, see, the area can't have an Indian reserve in it because it's already a forest reserve. Right, so, so there's words, a peculiar logic. <laughs> yeah, very reversed historical logic, yeah. So, uh, you know, it can't, it can't be a site of uh, this reserve for, for an Indian band because, hey, you know, it's, it's a forest. It's not, it's not a place where people live, mm-hmm. even as the people lived there before the forest reserve was created. The story is really interesting. There are a lot of parallels, as I was reading your article, between uh, uh, British Columbia and Ontario and negotiations between provincial governments and the federal government over the designation of Indian reserves, um, which tended to be uh, conflicts that boiled down to uh, resource conflicts, Um, not wanting to give up land uh, to uh, federal control as Indian reserves that was deemed as valuable for mining or forestry or hydroelectric development. Yeah, for sure. And in the case of the Tomogamy um, region, then the reserve area that the First Nation had selected was Austin Bay. And uh, and forestry representatives and other Ontario government representatives kept going down there and saying, oh, no, we can't make a reserve out of this area. There's too much valuable timber here. 
Mm-hmm. But of course, the First Nation had chosen that site um, precisely, well, in part at least, because of the valuable uh, timber resources. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I just see this parallel all over the place. Um, government not wanting to give up uh, resources that they could um, profit from to First Nations, for sure. So in this process of constructing this region as wilderness, in what ways was uh, tomogamy uh, and wilderness racialized? Um, well, it's, it's interesting because um, there's also a, a highly classed element to this discussion. So right. the people who could, in the early 1900s, afford to travel to tomogamy for wilderness vacations were only upper class people and, and later on becoming middle class people mm-hmm. because, of course, it was very expensive to get to the area by train um, and you needed to have the time off of work to be able to, to go and spend three weeks or a month or longer in the wilderness. <laughs> the class discussion of who could afford to visit Tomogamy was also a racialized um, one because, um, because it was white people mm-hmm. who could afford to go travel to Tomogamy. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time that that people were starting to travel to Tomogamy, then um, there was also a nationalist discourse which was highly racialized, um, where groups such as the Canada First Movement were mm-hmm. um, supporting a white Canada. So the idea that um, because Canada was a northern climate, that only northern quote unquote people could uh, could survive there um, right. was obviously highly racialized Mm -hmm. um but but um the wilderness was also part of this because the idea was that um these hardy white people would become hardier and presumably whiter through their interactions with these wilderness spaces um and so travel to places like tomogamy um was often a place where uh canadianness and whiteness could then be reinscribed um, right. Even though, at the same time, a lot of Americans were traveling to Tomogamy. So it's obviously a little bit more complicated than that. Sure, um, but sure. So on the one side, there's this um, racialized discourse about Canadianness um, and the role of wilderness in becoming Canadian. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, on the other hand, there are people traveling to Tomogamy in part to see the wilds of Canada and to become um, more white in a certain sense. Um, through contact with wilderness spaces and with Aboriginal people who um, in many ways were expected to perform the role of showing the wilderness um, to its future white Canadian inhabitants. Um, right. Because at the same time, part of this uh, racial discourse of, of uh, nationalism, but also um, in general of civilization and savagery, was the idea that um, Aboriginal people would slowly disappear in the steady march of progress as mm-hmm. um, Canadians, as Canada became a place for white settlers rather than for Aboriginal people. Um, so that's when we get the connection between wilderness and, and race happens. So your article discusses the origins of this social construction of wilderness in the Tomogamy region, but how has the idea of wilderness in this part of Ontario changed or, or stayed the same um, over the course of the 20th century in the context of late 20th century environmental activism? Um, I think that that is the thing that surprises me the most, actually, is the tenacity with which um, 
with which this wilderness idea remains. Um, and I'm not exactly sure why, and, and I don't know um, if partly it is that um, environmentalists uh, have an idea or we all have an idea that perhaps in order to communicate with a large public, um, ideas need to be made more simple or mm -hmm. bite-sized, um, things that we can then grab onto, you know, oh, well, yes, we can all agree that we need to save the wilderness or we need to save part of this pristine nature right. rather than looking at the kind of muddiness of it all. Well, actually, you know, it never was wilderness or how do we look at relationships between nature and culture? Why is it that some places we imagine as um, important to save while other places, often urban places, we consider already ruined. Um, so I would say that the the wilderness idea um, and perhaps ideal of tomogamy remains very strong, I think. Um, but at the same time, it always exists uh, up against other things. Um, for example, now when you drive into the tomogamy area, there's a sign that says, Welcome to Daki Manan, home of the Temiamogama Anishinaabe. Oh, and so here you have, you know, people, tourists, often driving to have these very similar wilderness encounters um, to the past, uh, although not so many of them are guided by Aboriginal guides these days. Um, but so kind of a similar journey from urban spaces into this so-called Canadian wilderness. But here you have a juxtaposition. Hang on a second. You know, is this the Canadian wilderness or right. is it the home of the First Nation? And I think that that tension has always existed, um, you know, even in travel writing, you see people, okay, well, you know, these Aboriginal people know the land better than I do, and so, therefore, what is the relationship between me and this uh, wilderness that is supposed to be mine as a Canadian um, versus Aboriginal people who are there, and the, the land, obviously, is where they live. Um, so, but at the same time, I think that it is a persistent idea, um, and it is used in, you know, representations of the region for tourists all over the place. If you look at uh, the Tomogamy um, website, uh, tourist website, lodge website, it's all, you know, welcome to the Tomogamy wilderness. So mm -hmm. I think it, this idea persists a lot, for sure. Well, the, uh, the article is To Visit and to Cut Down, Tourism, Forestry, and the Social Construction of Nature in 20th Century Northeastern Ontario. Listeners can uh, find the article in the most recent uh, issue of the Journal of the Canadian Historical Association, 2008, Volume 19, Number 1. We'll have a, a citation and a link up on the show notes. Jocelyn, I want to thank you for joining us uh, today and telling us a little bit more about your research. Well, thank you so much for having me, huh? The 14th Annual International Wanapate Aboriginal History and Politics Colloquium will be held from September 17th through to the 20th in conjunction with the Trent University Tomogamy Field Trip. The theme of this year's colloquium is Protecting the Land, Exploring Indigenous Governance, Environmental Conflict and Resource Agreements. Scholars, students and other members of the community will come together to explore issues of Aboriginal governance and resource conflicts in Canada. The colloquium organizers spoke with me to give us more details about the major issues that will be discussed at this event. I'm Dorothy Schreiber. I'm a limited-term assistant professor in the School of Environmental Studies at the University of Victoria. 
And I'm Simon Kula, and I am a uh, self-employed cultural anthropologist that does a lot of stuff, including uh, uh, working as a contract instructor for both the Department of Canadian Studies and the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at Carleton University in Ottawa. Well, I wanted to thank the both of you for joining us and uh, coming to tell us a little bit about the International uh, Wanapate Aboriginal History and Politics Colloquium. Uh, so just to start, could you tell the audience a little bit about what this colloquium is? Uh, I, I, I could probably speak to that, Sean. Uh, the, the, colloquium is, uh, the colloquium is a unique event. It, it, it takes place... Uh, uh, in a somewhat remote location in, in northern Ontario, in, in Tomogamy, Ontario, to be more specific, uh, at an old uh, uh, outfitting, canoe-tripping uh, camp. Now, the, it's still a camp, uh, but we take it over for a weekend in the fall, uh, uh, we being uh, a large uh, gaggle of academics and uh, consultants and Aboriginal elders and students and uh, people from all around the world. Uh, and uh, the colloquium itself has been going on now for, uh, I believe we're on our, uh, uh, I think it's our, 12th, it's our 12th year this year. And it started out as a small gathering uh, called the Ethno History, uh, not, not to be mistaken with, with the journal, the American Ethno History Journal, right. uh, the Ethno History Gathering. And it was a small gathering of, of, of academics um, to that wanted to come together in a, in a different kind of venue uh, connected to the land to talk about Aboriginal issues. Uh, and it's just over the years, it's, uh, it's grown and shrunk and grown again. And, um, and so it, it's very unique. Uh, and, and who are the kind of participants who uh, usually come to this colloquium? Uh, well, the participants we have a we have a variety. We have and we and we try and encourage a variety, and I think that's part of the uniqueness of it. Is uh, we so we we have academics, uh, we'll have professors, uh, we'll have uh, you know uh, assistant professors, and then we'll have contract instructors, and we'll have some uh, some professors who are retired. Uh, we'll also get consultants uh, that work in the Aboriginal uh, the field of Aboriginal issues. Uh, and we'll also get artists, and uh, we get elders and people who are not necessarily connected to uh, the uni a university or an educational institution, but are part of more of a grassroots uh, education movement. And uh, what's the theme for this year's colloquium? The theme this year is uh, protecting the land, exploring indigenous governance, environmental conflict, and resource agreements. And it came about uh, when Simon and I were, were talking in the fall about, um, about uh, resource conflicts that were, that were popping up all over Canada. Mm -hmm. And um, we were interested in the ways in which Indigenous peoples were demanding a say in how those development projects should proceed or whether they should proceed at all and how in all of those cases these communities were coming up against issues of governance and um, and sometimes in the media this, you know this is presented as a matter of tradition versus modernity you know an indigenous people being caught between two worlds um, struggling with the idea of development or in the case where there's factionalism which is often the case um, this is 
uh, often explained away as some kind of inherent tribal trait, you know, tribal factionalism and so forth. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to take a close look at those resource conflicts and to see what they had in common and also how they differ from one another and how indigenous governance factors in to how those conflicts are proceeding and how they're being resolved or not resolved in a lot of cases. Now, in a, in a past episode of this podcast, we had an interview with John Sandloss about uh, conflicts between the federal government and Aboriginal people in the Northwest Territories over wildlife conservation. So this is a topic that obviously resonates with environmental historians. Uh, is there a particular case of environmental conflict that you are focusing on, perhaps uh, related to the region in which this uh, colloquium will be taking place? Well, the case study for the conference and the, the um, community where our keynote speakers will be coming from is the Algonquin community of Barrier Lake. Mm. And this is a community, um, well, the territory of the Barrier Lake Algonquins is a few hours, a few hours drive north of Ottawa in the headwaters of the Ottawa River. Um, and it's a community that relies still to this day very heavily on hunting, fishing, and trapping. Mm-hmm. And this is, uh, and, and this community has been very heavily impacted by hydro development and especially by clear-cut logging. And governance is really uh, uh, sort of front and center in in the issues that are facing Barrier Lake because the government, the federal government, has interfered now for the third time with their traditional governance system in an effort to try to get the community to back down from its demands. And what is it that you expect scholars to bring to the table in terms of discussing this case study and other case studies of environmental conflict with Aboriginal people? Well, I just I'll I'll add to what Dorothy was saying previously, and in particular in Tamagami, and and the colloquium has has a, a long history of discussions around uh, resource-related issues. Uh, for environmental historians uh, you may be, uh, that, that may be listening, mm-hmm. uh, the, they'll remember the Tamagami blockades back in in the late 80s around the clear-cutting of the the, uh, the old-growth forests in, in the Tamagami region. Right. And, and that, that gained a lot of uh, national attention and certainly uh, around environmental issues. But uh, a main part of that uh, episode, uh, so, to, so to speak, was... Uh, was the was a was a, a, a land claims case by the Temagame Anishinaabe, uh, who are the First Nations uh, who inhabit that traditional territory, mm-hmm. and, and they have uh, f- for many many years been uh, trying to uh, have their their claim to their territory recognized, and, and so 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 this resource issue around the cutting of old growth forests. Uh, was also superimposed within um, the Aboriginal uh, rights question, and, and and again we have this happening in Barrier Lake, uh, not necessarily around the cutting of old growth forests, but the use uh, the use of resources and, and jurisdiction over resources and governance issues over resources and and how it all plays out. So it sounds like this case study will uh, have a lot of resonance for other. Uh, uh, incidences of environmental conflict between the federal and provincial states and Aboriginal people in different parts of Canada? Yeah, I think so. It's a unique uh, case in, in a number of different ways. One is that the, the um, Barrier Lake community negotiated after years of activism in the 1980s. In 1991, they got a trilateral agreement 
between Canada, the province of Quebec, and the Algonquins of Barrier Lake. And that was to, to put in place um, a research and negotiation process to develop uh, in, in a resource management plan that would allow some logging to take place, but that would also protect the traditional way of life of the Algonquin uh, people. And, uh, and so there's a, there was a lot of research that went on um, you know, in, in the years uh, following 1991, um, a, a lot of traditional knowledge research, um, a lot of um, just straight forest biology to inventorying forest and wildlife data and looking at the regional economy, um, mapping out sensitive areas and so forth. Uh, and so, and, and, but then the, um, the federal government and the province of Quebec backed out of the agreement. And so it's been sort of an ongoing struggle for the community to um, to get this this agreement um, recognized and implemented, and this is all happening outside of the comprehensive claims process. So it's it's really a very novel approach that the Algonquins have taken. And for participants of the colloquium, what kind of uh, events or activities are you planning? What can they expect? Well, the colloquium is unique in the sense that uh, it's a combination of, of events. Uh, about three years ago, uh, we decided to uh, to come to colloquium. We decided to come together with the with the Trent University Canadian Studies field trip, uh, which has been going on for almost 30 years. Uh, first initiated by uh, John Wadlin, uh, who's now retired uh, Trent University Canadian Studies professor. And, and the Canadian Studies Weekend is, is, is a real, uh, um, you know, the idea of it was to bring students uh, up to an area where they could actually learn about Canadian history and Canadian ecology and, and a place where they could be on the land and, and be engaged in uh, canoeing and hiking and, and going on nature walks and, and, and having conversations about uh, Canadian history and, and a historic location. Uh, so the colloquium itself, the way it's organized is we have, uh, uh, it's, it's Thursday, Friday, uh, it's Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then, we, and then Sunday. So it's sort of a, a long weekend. And, and people arrive on Thursday, and then Friday is the day where people have a chance to really get to know each other. And we go out, uh, we go out on the land, and we're in canoes, and um, we're hiking, and we're, we're, we're forming, uh, you know, we're, we're forming really informal relationships with each other and getting to know each other on, uh, on a basis that, um, you know, on a more friendly basis. And then on Saturday, we have, uh, we have a full day of papers. Uh, our keynote's usually on the Friday night, and then on Saturday we have a full day of uh, academic, rigorous papers where uh, we really get into all the issues around the theme. And, and, then, and then on Sunday we have uh, some, some small activities and we have a little roundtable to discuss the theme for the next year, uh, and then people leave in, in the afternoon. So it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very unique event in, in that sense. And are there any plans uh, post-colloquium to produce a publication or any other way to disseminate some of the papers that are presented uh, at this event? Well, Dorothy and I have been chatting a lot about how to get the the uh, the, the papers out, and 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 I think uh, 
you know, we've been talking a lot about using new digital media as the sort of uh, as the best way of of, of getting uh, the conference papers out, uh, because a lot of the a lot of the papers that we get at the colloquium are, are very are really cutting edge research, and and we've tried in the past to, to go through the traditional publishing route, but it takes like. Uh, you know, on an average, it takes about two, three years to actually get uh, a peer-reviewed, uh, uh, high-end uh, publication. And, and by that time, a lot of the research is, you know, you know, things may have changed, and uh, it, it, so it's really challenging to go the traditional publishing route. So what we've decided is to really uh, use the new digital media and, and the internet, and and so we've been we've been throwing around some ideas on how to do that. Well, it sounds really interesting. I know that uh, the environmental history community certainly uh, will have an interest in, uh, in, in finding out more about this conference, attending, and maybe even presenting at the conference. Uh, I want to thank the both of you for uh, coming on the podcast and letting us know a little bit more about uh, the uh, Wanapati Aboriginal History and Politics Colloquium. Thank you, Sean. Thanks, Sean. Really appreciate it. You can check out our show notes for a link to download the most recent call for papers for the 14th annual International Wanapate Aboriginal History and Politics Colloquium. The deadline for submitting abstracts is July 21st, and the deadline for registration is August 14th. Nature's Past is produced with support from the Network in Canadian History and Environment. This episode was made by Jocelyn Thorpe, Dorothy Schreiber, Simon Pula, and me, Sean Karaj. Music for Nature's Past was licensed by Creative Commons. For details on the artists, please take a look at our show notes at niche.uwo.ca slash nature's past, where you can also download new episodes, subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, and leave comments. Please let us know what you think about the podcast, and don't forget to rate this podcast and write a short review on our iTunes page. If you have any ideas for new episodes or you want to send me some feedback, contact me through my website at seancourage.wordpress.com. Nature's Pass will be on a break for this summer, but we'll return with a new episode on graduate studies and environmental history in Canada this September. Stay subscribed, and we'll be back after the summer break. You can always get the latest information on events in the environmental history community from the Niche website at niche.uwo.ca. Follow Niche on Twitter at twitter.com slash niche underscore Canada. Thanks for listening, and be sure to download our next episode.